heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the voice of a nation. I'm Wallace Garneau, guest host for Malcolm. And today I want to talk about crime in the United States. The reasons why crime rates are exploding the reasons why violent crime is exploding, uh, and on all of the things that, uh, that lead to that. But I, I don't just want to focus on, on bad district attorneys that are not enforcing the law, or a bad executive branch that is selectively enforcing the law. I want to focus on root causes. And the fact of the matter is that there are many stories related to race and race relations in this country that never get talked about. So yeah, we're going to talk a little about Jim Crow as a cause, uh, obviously slavery, uh, but we're going to talk about the underbelly of what I call American apartheid in a way that I think probably most of you have not heard before. Uh, this is an important conversation to have, and so uh, we're going to get into it. We're going to dig deep, and uh, I guess we'll see what uh, what you think after as we, as we get into this. Now, it's no secret that the United States has a racist past. Uh, we had over 300 years of slavery and Jim Crow, and our country has an unsavory past with regard to race. What is not as well known is that some of the laws that made up what I, again, like to call American apartheid, they're still on the books, and they're still doing great harm. Now, we have to go all the way back. This isn't just, not all the way back to slavery. We have to go all the way back to the decades before 1933, kind of after the end of the Civil War and then up to 1933. During that era, African Americans had been moving north in pretty large numbers because there were better economic opportunities in the north than what were available in the south. Uh, the African Americans moving north to take those opportunities didn't have as much of an education as the northerners already working those jobs. Uh, you also had a lot of racism at the time, both in the north and the south. I mean, this was, after all, the era of Jim Crow. And African Americans could only take jobs by offering to work for a little bit less than their white counterparts to do the same jobs with the same levels of productivity. Well, businesses learned pretty quickly that if they focused on hiring African Americans uh, for the jobs that did not require as much of an education, that their labor costs were lower than were those of competitors who only hired white workers. And in 1933, believe it or not, the African American unemployment rate was actually lower than that for white Americans. And the African-American workforce participation rate was higher than that for white Americans. Black people in 1933 had an easier time in the United States finding employment than white people did. That's just, that just the way it is. There was, a, there was a wage gap between the white and black Americans, which is what was driving employers to hire African-Americans first. But that pay gap was closing. And not only that... But as you move forward in time, the children of African-American workers in the North were far better educated than their parents had been and were moving further up in the workforce than their parents, their parents were able to. Well, today we hear a lot about immigration and about how illegal immigration, large numbers of people coming into the country, 
about how that's bad uh, for the for the people who are already here, particularly low skill labor. Uh, personally, I, I take a, a slightly different tack on it. I, I note, for example, that the Joe Biden's approval rate among Hispanic Americans is 26% right now. It's actually the lowest approval rating he has of any demographic group in America. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, most of the people coming in from, from south of our border, Hispanic Americans, they're predominantly Catholic, so they're, they're, they're Christians. They're against abortion. They have a strong work ethic. They believe in a fair day's pay for a fair day's labor. They're, they're, not, they're not natural Democrats. So the idea that they would start becoming more Republican, that they would be more conservative, well, yeah. So it's, it's not surprising at all to me that Joe Biden's approval rating among Hispanic Americans is so very low. But be that as it may, uh, Americans today have a fear that immigrants coming from Central and South America are going to displace uh, American workers, or at least reduce the pay that they get. And so too, in the early 1930s, white voters in the North had a fear that African Americans migrating North were going to displace them from their jobs and reduce their income potential. This created political pressure to create something that America had never had before, which was a national minimum wage. Now, the first national minimum wage in existence in history was actually uh, by a Roman emperor. And if I think about it for a minute, I'll remember his name. I believe it's Thaddeus. And uh, this minimum wage was created because uh, migrants moving into Rome were willing to work for less than Romans were, and they were displacing Romans in the workforce. So the Romans demanded a minimum wage to prevent non-Romans from working for less than what Romans were willing to work for. And uh, as a consequence of the minimum wage, Romans were hired first again. So the Romans were able to kick the, not kick the, the migrants completely out of the workforce, but they were able to make them secondary employees where, where Romans were hired first. And non-Romans were only hired if there wasn't a Roman that could take a job. Well, in 1933, Franklin Roosevelt signed America's first minimum wage act into law. And suddenly, firms found that it was just as expensive to hire African-American workers as it was to hire white workers. After that, racism no longer led to lower profitability compared to competitors who were not racist. And unsurprisingly, firms began hiring white people first again. The unemployment rate for African Americans immediately shot up above that of white Americans, and it has never been the same as or lower than the unemployment rate for white Americans again. just didn't happen. It shot way up, and the unemployment rate for, for, for African Americans has always been higher ever since than that of white Americans. Now, if we flash forward, we don't want to go all the way to the war on poverty. We actually want to stop and look at South Africa after World War II. Now, those of you who aren't old enough to remember what was going on in South Africa, I'm old enough. I remember apartheid. Uh, apartheid in South Africa was, was much worse than, than even Jim Crow was. Uh, segregation was, was rampant. It was, 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 was very similar to Jim Crow, but it was actually, it was actually in some ways worse than Jim Crow. And, uh, 
after World War II, when South, the, the, the South Africans were, were coming back in after the war, black South Africans were dominating many fields, particularly like construction. And uh, black South Africans actually had a lower unemployment rate in South Africa than did white South Africans. And uh, they had a higher workforce participation rate than did white South Africans. There was a pay gap between black and white South Africans doing the same work. But the pay gap was closing. The white labor unions, they began to press for political reform to address what they considered to be a major problem. Now, what South Africa did was they passed laws ensuring that black South African schools would always be inferior to white South African schools. And this was a segregated society, so it was very, very easy to do that. They also passed minimum wage laws and prevailing wage laws that ensured that black South African workers were just as expensive, but not as well-educated as white South Africans. And just as the minimum wage in America oppressed African-American labor, so too these reforms in South Africa oppressed black South African labor. These reforms were, in fact, a central pillar of the economic side of apartheid. Now, if we start looking at the United States in the late 1950s and early 1960s, inflation had effectively eliminated our minimum wage laws. We still had minimum wages in the books, but the minimum wages were lower than the market-clearing price of labor. So everyone who wanted a job could find one, and they all paid more than the minimum. The African-American unemployment rate and workforce participation rates, they were still higher than for white Americans, and there was a wage gap, but those gaps were closing. Employers were quickly catching on that they could make more money by hiring African-American labor first. And this time, African-Americans were much better educated than they had been 30 years earlier. They were poised to move much further up the income ladder. Well, the Democrat Party had a problem. This was Lyndon B. Johnson, who is a devout racist, is actually evidenced now as a part of uh, some, data, some data that was released related to Kennedy's assassination that suggested Lyndon B. Johnson may have been an active member of the Ku Klux Klan. And African Americans have been voting primarily Democrat since 1934 which was ironically one year after Roosevelt passed the first law specifically aimed to oppress them, which was, of course, the minimum wage law. Jim Crow was still in effect, and the Democrats had been fighting to keep it, using every trick in the book to block Republicans from passing it. Lyndon B. Johnson is a member of the House of uh, Representatives. Uh, he had a perfect record voting against the Civil Rights Act. And in this era... What a lot of people I don't think realize, the African-American vote had been voting Democrat since around 1934. Actually, since 1934, they, they had not predominantly voted Republican again. They still haven't predominantly voted Republican again. This was an era when every four years, when the DNC met to choose their nominee for president, the Ku Klux Klan would march in in full regalia. So, very, very clearly, the Democrats were the party of racism at least at that time. And so Lyndon B. Johnson was against the Civil Rights Act, but he realized that African Americans were on the verge of turning Republican again, which he knew would be the death knell of the Democratic Party. And at the same time, white Americans 
wanted African Americans oppressed in the workforce. At least the racist ones did, the Democrats. So what was Lyndon B. Johnson going to do? Well, first he flipped in the Civil Rights Act. He told Democrats to pass it so that he could sign it. And it was passed with nearly universal Republican support, whereas the Democrat support was very split. And it was signed into law in 1964. Now, I believe that had Johnson stopped there, that had he passed the Civil Rights Act and done nothing else, that we would today have as close to a post-racist nation as is humanly possible. And I want to be very clear on something. Uh, we keep hearing people say that we're a racist nation, and they'll point to specific acts of racism as proof of that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there are 330 million people in the United States of America. Not 3 million, not 3.3 million, not even 33 million. 330 million people. With a population that size, the concept that nobody will be racist is absurd. Of course there are going to be racists. And there are going to be racists in every race. You're going to have people that are good. You're going to have people that are bad. You're going to have people that are good in different ways. You're going to have people that are bad in different ways. I believe most people are good at heart. I believe everybody is flawed, but I believe most people want to be good people. I believe racism is something that everybody almost universally sees as bad. Now, there are exceptions. Uh, if you go up to somebody who's a member of the Ku Klux Klan, for example, and you say, are you a racist? No, he's not going to say, no, I'm not. He's going to say, well, what gave it away? Was it the hood? You know, these people are not ashamed of their beliefs. They're not ashamed, but they're, they're, nor are they very common. I can remember when I was in my 20s, there was a, a giant Ku Klux Klan gathering or a parade or whatever in, in, in Lansing. Well, three guys showed up. Three people. Supposed to be a statewide, three people showed up. You know, there are thousands of protesters. One of the complaints the protesters had was they couldn't see the people they were protesting against. They couldn't find them because there were so few of them. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, when you can have an entire gathering or an entire, uh, an entire protest, an entire grouping of, 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 of uh, a march, but you, you can fit the entire movement in the back of a Ford Fiesta. To me, that's not a big movement. So, are there racists in America? Of course there are. There will always be racists in America, and there will be racists in every race in America. But I don't view white supremacy as a real political force. I, I view white supremacy as something that 99.99% of Americans are vehemently opposed to. But Lyndon Johnson was not. So he flipped on the Civil Rights Act and made a, a comment that uh, to some of his cabinet members about making the N-word people vote Democrat for the next hundred years. Uh, but what he did was he created what he called the War on Poverty. Now, Milton Friedman looked at the reforms in the War on Poverty, and he said, the same reforms South Africa put in place after World War II. Same things. You're going to push not just white wealth, but all wealth out of the inner cities, which is going to dramatically decrease the funding for schools in the inner cities, 
which is going to create a two-level education system in the United States where kids in the suburb, who will be mostly white, are going to get an amazing education and the schools in the inner cities are going to fall apart, preventing African Americans, predominantly African Americans, really anybody in the inner cities, but at the time predominantly African Americans, from getting a quality education. And Milton Friedman said, not only that, but when you give welfare benefits to single mothers, but only if the father isn't in the household, you're creating not wealth but dependency. And not only that, but you're excluding the father not just from the household, but from the benefits. And What's going to happen, Milton Friedman said, is first of all, all of the wealth is going to, is, is going to leave the inner cities. It's the first thing that's going to happen. The wealth is going to go to the suburbs. White wealth, black wealth, all the wealth is going to go to the suburbs. The next thing that's going to happen is with the minimum wage laws and prevailing wage laws, the employers are going to look at this and they're going to say, okay, so when we hire people out of high school, do we want to hire people that have a high level of education for high school, the quality education, or do we want to hire people that have an inferior education. Well, predictably, Milton Friedman said, it's going to be just like in South Africa. The quality of the education is going to drive... With, if it costs the same for either employee, employers will choose the better educated employees. So the jobs moved to the suburbs. Very, very predictably. Well, once the jobs moved to the suburbs... And this is one of the big reasons. There are other reasons why, for example, the Detroit area where I live that the big three moved out of the city. Uh, taxes were a part of, there were other reasons, but a big, big, big part of it was that they were following the better educated employees who were in the suburbs where the better schools were. So now you've got a situation where people in the inner cities, single mothers are taken care of and their children are taken care of, but the fathers are out of the household the single parent rate of, of raising children went from about 20% to now it's about 80% in the inner city. And, and what do the men do? They don't qualify for benefits. You've destroyed the economic opportunities in the inner city, so it's not like they can get a good job at a factory or something. There are no economic opportunities in the city. That's what Will Friedman said. He said you can destroy the economic opportunities in the inner cities. And so Milton Friedman reasoned that the people who live in the inner cities will increasingly turn to crime. Not because they're bad people, but because if you don't have any other means to get income to survive, you don't have a lot of choices. If it's crime or starvation, I don't care who you are, most people will choose crime if it is the only, th well, the only way they can survive. And no economic opportunities, of course you're going to have higher crime rates in the inner cities. Now, Thomas Sowell talks about growing up in Harlem. He could sleep out, in the, people would sleep out in the parks on hot nights. He could sleep out in the fire escape on, on hot nights. And you could walk downtown, you're perfectly safe. You didn't, you didn't have a care. That's not to say there was no crime. But the crime rates were nothing like they are today. And so he was talking about, of course, before the, the war on poverty. Well, fast forward to, to, uh, to the time that Milton Friedman was talking about, and he said the crime rates are going to go up, but more importantly, children in the inner cities are going to grow up 
seeing that all of the economic opportunity rests with gangs and crime. You grow up, and who are the people that have the, the nice clothes and the nice cars? Who do you see that you can look at and say, well, that guy is successful? He's from my neighborhood, and he's doing well. It's the criminals. So Milton Friedman said, over subsequent generations, living in neighborhoods with high crime rates, where the criminals are the ones who appear to have upward mobility, economically speaking, what's going to happen is crime is going to start becoming normalized. People are going to start looking at the criminals as not being criminals, but as just being, you know, economically upward mobile. That's what success is. Gangbangers, successful. Uh, you start getting the rap culture. He didn't specifically predict rap culture, but he predicted the normalization of crime within the inner city communities. And he said over generations, the concept that criminals are doing something wrong and should be punished for crime is going to start to go away. And people are going to start to view the criminals as the good guys. And they're going to start to view the police, the people enforcing the law, not as being people that are protecting and serving the public, but as being people that are oppressing the inner city communities. Lo and behold, what do we have today? Not only did what Milton Friedman predict would happen, happen, but it happened over the exact same time scale Milton Friedman predicted it would. It took roughly the same number of generations that Milton Friedman said it would. He said that once that happens, you're going to start having clashes between the police and people who don't believe they should be arrested. They're going to resist arrest because they're going to, why are you arresting me? I didn't do anything wrong. I'm just committing crime. You know, that's, that's what we do. It's not a big deal. You shouldn't arrest me for that. It just, this, this, is, this is what I do. So they resist arrest, and then you get violence between the police and the people that the police are trying to police. This leads to occasionally somebody gets killed, and, and then you have riots and all the, everything else. It, it, it all stems from the, the same thing. It all stems from the normalization of crime, which stems from a lack of economic opportunity outside of crime. It all goes back to exactly what Milton Friedman said about the war on poverty. He said, this is a war on black people. And that's exactly where we are today. So we can talk about DA saying, I am not going to enforce shoplifting laws if it's less than $1,000. We can talk about laws saying that if you can show a need for what you steal, we are not going to enforce any stealing laws. We can talk about the anti-police sentiment, not just in the inner cities, but all over the country. Everybody, it seems, on the political left thinks that our police are hunting black people. You know, like it's deer season or something. It's crazy how they talk about it. But what's driving that isn't police brutality. It's not police violence. It is the attitudes that very predictably came about as a part of the war on poverty. And it was all very predictable. The timetable, even. Milton Friedman predicted it right down to the last detail. The only thing he didn't mention was gangster rap. 
but he did mention the culture. So all of this was very, very predictable. Milton Friedman was, 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 was spot on. And of course it happened. We destroyed the, 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 the economic opportunities in the inner city. And Lyndon B. Johnson. Now, there are a lot of people, I think, today that see this, and they don't know. They, they don't see the cause and effect relationships. I get that. There are a lot of people, I think, on the left that want that. I think they're good people. They, they want to do right by our country. They want to do right by the African-American by, by African community. They want to do right by the inner city. I don't like saying the African-American community. I apologize for that. I view it as the inner city community. I view it as suburb community, both of which are mixed. And I look at it and I remember, for example, that uh, white families that are single parent in the inner city don't do any better than black families in the inner city that, that are single parent. And when you go out to the suburbs, it's the same thing. Black families in the suburbs, particularly with two parents, do just as well as white families. In fact, if you look only at college-educated families, where both parents are college-educated, black families actually do better than white families. So it's, it's not really a black and a white issue so much as a suburb and inner-city issue. And incidentally, I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and the suburbs in Kalamazoo were the same school district as, as the inner cities, Kalamazoo being just big enough to kind of have an inner city. And as a consequence, we were all in the same school system. I had to move to Detroit to find out that racism is still rampant in the United States. I was surprised at how much racism there was in the Detroit area. Because in Detroit, when the Detroit school systems began to flounder, well, Southfield was a different school system. Hamtramck, different school system. You move out to Bloomfield Hills, different school system. So the, the suburbs were completely different school systems in the inner city. And because of that, segregation was very, very real. Busing prevented segregation in Kalamazoo. It didn't prevent it in the Detroit suburbs and in Detroit. And when you look at where the majority of Americans live, the majority of Americans live in large cities, in and around large cities, the suburbs, you know, New York, Chicago, Detroit, L.A. They don't live in Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo's a, I don't want to call it flyover country, it's not. Every, every city is important. Every American is important. But there are far more people living in and around big cities than in and around small cities. And as a consequence, yeah, racism still exists in the United States in far higher levels than I thought it did growing up. So anyway, the better educated kids were in the suburbs, factories and businesses, they could move. They did. A child born into the inner city had no economic opportunities. It just, the whole thing. Of course it happened the way it did. Okay, so we've talked about the cause of, of, of the higher crime rates, the root cause of the higher crime rates, which is, in, in my opinion at least, the war on poverty. Let's talk about some of the things, both as a part of the war on poverty and in response to some of the negative things that the war on poverty caused and, and look at how things have played out more recently. Now we can look at affirmative action laws. These were passed, of course, to try to even out, amongst other things, educational opportunities. Unfortunately, while affirmative action can help minority students get into college, it does so by putting students into colleges they would never be able to get into based on SAT scores or other objective measurements. 
You know, the result is that the dropout rate for students who benefit from affirmative action has gone through the roof. If we look at MIT as an example, it'll take an African-American student in the 90th percentile in math. MIT, high, you have to be very good at math to, to go to it. Now, an African-American student at MIT in the 99th percentile in math, they graduate at the same rates with the same levels of success as the white students at MIT. But a white student at MIT has to be in the 99th percentile in math to get into MIT. An African-American could get in if they're the 90th percentile in math. Well, an African-American student who is below the 99th percentile, who got into MIT because of affirmative action, their dropout rates are sky high. Now, affirmative action helps white people who can, if they're in college, they can, they can look around and say, look how diverse we are. They can pat themselves on the back and say, we're doing the right thing here. But I fail to see the benefit to a 22-year-old African-American who now owes $100,000 in student loans to MIT and who doesn't have a degree. I fail to see the benefit to the student who drops out and all they have from, from affirmative action is, is, is a debt load. It's not propping up minority students. It sets them up for failure. Without affirmative action, if all we used were objective measurements, like SAT scores, like grade point averages, if all we used were objective measurements to pair students with colleges, the dropout rates would be the same. So it hasn't helped African Americans. If you want to help African Americans, you don't take somebody who is in the 90th percentile in math and make them compete against people that are in the 99th percentile in math. No. You have to improve the inner city schools that are educating the children before they go to college. The solution is better schools in the inner city. But that's not where we're going. That's not, we're going in the opposite direction. We're destroying standards in our school in order to make it easier to graduate without learning as much. It's, it's ridiculous. And we still have minimum wage laws, prevailing wage laws, affirmative action, and all of these oppressive laws that were a part of the war on poverty on the books. They're still keeping the economic side of, again, what I call American apartheid, alive and well. Many African Americans are still oppressed by laws that were, maybe the people that are affording these laws today don't, aren't doing this on purpose, but they were originally put in place with a specific, specific purpose of putting African Americans at a competitive disadvantage. Ladies and gentlemen, that's, that's where we are. That, that, that's how these things work. And so, yeah, crime rates are exploding because of a blue flu, Police are afraid to do their jobs. They're afraid of, of being the next YouTube sensation, not in a good way. And yeah, we can blame the war on poverty. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a pause at this time and give a message from our sponsors. But don't go away. On the other side of the brief break, I'm going to talk about actual solutions to the problems facing our country, how we can actually finally live up to the founding ideal of liberty and justice for all. So we're going to take a brief break. Stay tuned. I'll be right back. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. 
There are microbes in the air and they're in your house and the Genesis Fogger is the solution. This is a mobile fogger that uses a unique technology to give a non-toxic dry mist to cleanse the air and cleanse your rooms of microbes, whether they be bacterial, fungal, or viral, including SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. So go to the Genesis Fogger website and use the promo code OUTLOUD for a discount on your purchase of the model and get going with a cleaner house as there could be more microbes on the way. We're concerned about not only the current pandemic, but future ones. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both on the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. Let the silent voices be heard. It was the rallying call that started it all. It's a wide spectrum of programming, from world and political news to societal and cultural stories. Six amazing years of news blogs, informative podcasts, and great talk radio. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. You've been in that situation. The person next to you is sniffling, or worse yet, <coughs> coughing. Flu, cold, and coronaviruses are everywhere. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to reduce these threats with an invisible mask as an additional layer of protection? Sold by hundreds of pharmacists and medical doctors, our American-made povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray, Cofix RX, lasts for hours deactivating viruses and germs while protecting you from airborne pathogens that make us sick. America Out Loud listeners get 20% off. Use Cofix RX while in large groups, while traveling, or for any other type of high-risk situation as an additional layer of protection to help reduce your likelihood of catching a cold, the flu, or SARS-CoV-2 viruses. Right now, America Out Loud listeners get 20% off of all orders. Click our banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Voice of a Nation. I'm Wallace Garneau, guest hosting for Malcolm. And in the second half of today's show, I want to talk about how to address the rise of crime in our country, racism, and in all of the all of the things that still prevent us from truly being a nation of liberty and justice for all. Uh, but I want to show first how we're moving in the wrong direction, how the political class is continuing to fail to address this issue. The, the, the left seems to want to address racism by fundamentally focusing... Well, let's go back a step further. What fundamentally is racism? Now, we could talk about dictionary definitions about it's, it's believing one race is, is superior than another or different than another in ways that matter, that there are fundamental traits that you can classify people based on race, all of that. We could look at the, the left-leaning definition of racism, which is that it's power plus, it's, uh, excuse me, that it is uh, prejudice plus power. And they actually go further than that. 
and they say that you can assume prejudice because we all have some level of subconscious prejudice. So really to the left is just power, which is why they say all white people are racist. But what fundamentally is racism that makes it such an evil force? And I'm going to throw a word out there that I think will resonate with you when you hear it. I think to say, yeah, that really does get to the heart of the matter. That word is hate. Racism to me is fundamentally evil, not because it classifies people, but because it is predicated by hate. And hatred is bad. I think, to me, it's not just racism that we want to extinguish from this country, that in, in a perfect society, it wouldn't just be that, that, that races get along. It would be that people get along. I think, to me, if you want to eliminate racism, you have to go further and eliminate hate. And unfortunately, what our political class wants to do is to redirect hate. So they want to attack, for example, what they call whiteness, what they call toxic masculinity. They want us to hate different things. And they try to say that hating white people or hating whiteness is not racist. Of course it is racist. Of course it is racist. But I don't want to focus on the racist aspect of it so much as the hate. Is it okay to hate people because they're white? Is it okay to hate people because they're fat? Is it okay to hate people because they're ugly? I don't think it's okay to hate people at all. I got to be honest with you. Disliking someone can be healthy because we shouldn't be around toxic people. So if, if somebody is toxic in your life and you don't like them, of, of course it's okay not to hang around that person. Of course dislike can be a positive force. It, it, it prevents us from being around people that are unhealthy. But hate? Hate consumes the one who feels it. If, if you hate me, and I'm sure there are people out there that do, if you hate me, I probably don't even know it. So... Your hatred of me doesn't affect me. It affects you. And for you, that can be an all-consuming force. If you hate someone, if you truly hate someone, that will consume you without hurting the people you hate. So it's, it's, it's counterproductive, even in the sense that it, you, you can't use it in a positive way, even in, in terms of vengeance. It's, there is no positive aspect of hate. And, and racism is driven by hate, but so are a lot of other things. Hate crimes. Hate. And when I look at what the left is doing, toxic masculinity, we're, for God's sake, we're teaching five-year-olds to hate themselves and to hate who they are and to hate what they feel. You know, masculinity is a thing. It drives, it, it drives chivalry. It, it, it drives a, a, you know, a man protecting his family. There are positive aspects of masculinity. So to tell children that what you feel about yourself, about that you're you're a boy and you want to play with cars and not dolls, or what you know that you have masculine tendencies. To say that's toxic, that's hateful, and to say it to young children, that's just that's just that's deplorable, it's despicable, it's evil, and of course it's evil. It's driven by hate. To tell people that whiteness is evil, that or that hard work is 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 acting white. Come on, that's hate. And there is no positive aspect to hate. 
Now, if we want to to rid this country of racism, you can't rid the country of racism without also ridding the country of hate. We have to teach people tolerance of other people. We have to teach people tolerance not just of other races or other lifestyles, but of other beliefs. Now, banning people on Twitter because you don't like what they say, that's hate. Yeah, you may say, well, I just hate what they say. Well, let them say it, and, and, and then you can say what you want. You know, I, I don't normally agree with Al Gore, but Al Gore's idea of the Internet was that it would be this grand marketplace of ideas. And as we throw all these ideas out there, and, and people support some ideas, they don't support other ideas, his belief was that over time, the best ideas would kind of filter to the top. If, if I throw an idea out there that I can't support, then other people are not as apt to support that idea as, as maybe somebody else throws a idea out there and, and, and he can support it. So the whole idea of this marketplace of ideas, that was, that was something I actually agreed with that, that Al Gore said. And then I look at Elon Musk and what he's trying to do with Twitter. Well, what he's trying to do is... Robert Reich actually said that this is a great threat to democracy and a great threat to the freedom of speech. What he wants to do is he wants to take the algorithms that are used to censor content and he wants to make them open source and transparent so that everybody knows what the rules are. And then he wants to enforce those rules equally across the board. Scary, huh? In other words, content moderators can't take their politics to shut down the other side, to shut down opposing political voices just because they disagree on, for example, matters of policy. Well, the left has a problem with that. Robert Reich has a problem with that because it's not about, it's about control. The political left has a problem when it comes to hate because they're still pushing it. And so in an open marketplace of ideas, they lose. They, they talk about everybody love everybody, but then they hate everybody. Everything they do, it's all driven by hate. And it's, it's as if they think that they can create a new form of racism that will be better than and drown out the old form of racism. It's hate. It's hateful. It's spiteful. You, you can't teach people to hate themselves or to hate other people and expect good outcomes. And yet that is what the left consistently tries to do. All of the wokeness, all of it, it's all about deflecting hatred in a different direction. It's, it's all about blaming people for the behavior of other people. We live in a society today where you're not judged based upon what you do, but you're judged based upon what other people who look like you not even what they're doing today, what other people who look like you did in the past or what happened to people who look like you in the past. We're judging people today based on people who are dead, what people who are dead, either what was done to them or, or, or what they did to other people. And it's not even based upon your family. My family, for example, comes from Quebec, it comes from the Netherlands, and it comes from Germany. 
I am the third generation in all sides of my family. I've, all of my great-grandparents were, were born uh, either in Quebec, in the Netherlands, or, or in Prussia. There's no slave owners in my family. If there's any slavery in my family, you know, probably Roman slaves that I'm probably descended from. So there's no, there, there's no history of that. There, there's no history of, of Jim Crow even in my family. My family, we've always, they've always been teachers. Uh, they've always been, 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 been very anti-racist. So there's no history of that. So I'm guilty because people I'm not even related to, but who happen to look like me did something evil. Well, that is what we're being told. It's what, it's what the left is teaching our children. It's what our schools are, are, are teaching people as young as five years of age. And it's even worse than that. I mean, imagine you're a five-year-old little boy and you're told that you're white and whiteness is the greatest evil history has ever seen and that you are personally responsible for 300 years of slavery and Jim Crow. You're told that you're a boy and that if you feel like you're a male, that you're toxic because you have toxic masculinity. And so you're told... You shouldn't go by Tom. You should go by Tammy. You should you should not be straight because that would mean that you are responsible for all of the evil that you have benefiting from, even if you didn't do it, even if you didn't know it was done because you're only five years old and we haven't taught you that yet. But you're the reason that the world isn't perfect. You are the stain. And you're five years old. And the only way that you can make amends is by not being male, by being anti-white, by buying into a narrative that is being forced down your throat, and it's a political narrative, by redirecting hate in the direction that we want it to go. You're going to hate conservatives. You're going to hate this whiteness thing. You're going to hate privilege. You're going to hate... The idea of privilege, I mean, let's talk about that because that's related to hate as well. I am a parent. I have two children. Of course, as a parent, I want to do everything that I can to help my children succeed in life. I want to help them with their education. I want to instill positive values in them. My children are adults now, so um, that job is, is, is largely done. I'm here now for you know guidance, support, and what have you. But I did everything that I possibly could and continue to do what I can to propel my children forward, to give them every advantage they can possibly have in life. And why do I do that? Because I want them to have unearned privilege? No, because I want them to be successful, because I love them, because they're my kids. I don't consider that bad. I don't consider that evil. I don't consider that unearned. See, to me, every generation and every parent is a bridge between the subsequent generation and the next generation. Our job as parents our job as people is to take the culture and everything else that we're given from our parents and from the preceding generation to go through it, to take out that which is no longer relevant, because not all of it is, times change, to keep what is still precious in it, to throw away the bad, to throw away the no longer relevant, to add new things to it that are necessary for our lives, and then to hand that to our children so that they have all of the advantages we can possibly give them, not just as parents, but as a nation, as a people, as a civilization. 
And then our children will hopefully do the same. Well, what our political leaders want to do instead is to burn it all down. They say, no, don't take anything from the subsequent generation. They're evil. They did bad things. And, and instead, we're going to blame you for the things they did, and we're not going to take any of that culture. We're not going to take any of that wealth. We're not going to take any of that, quote, unearned privilege. We're going to start all over from scratch with a brand new society. We're going to ignore all of the... You, know, you turn on the lights and the lights come on. That doesn't happen all over the world. The, the, we, people act like the United States is this terrible country with no opportunity where everybody is poor and we're, we're very, very unfortunate to live here and, and people are starving or this terrible place. It's not like that at all. You know, I've traveled all over the world. I was, was, was spent eight years in the military. I've lived overseas. My wife is from Poland. I've, I've been all over Europe. I've been to, I've been, uh, I've been to Mexico. I've been, I've been in the Caribbean. I've been, uh, I've been all, I've been all over the world. And, uh, this is by far the the country that that we're the wealthiest country on earth per capita, both pre and post tax. This is you know, if, if we talk about how bad our healthcare in America is. Well, if you need heart surgery, this is where you want to be. Uh, if you have cancer, this is where you want to be. Yeah, you might get free healthcare in Germany, but that doesn't mean one you're going to wait. Two, the, the quality of it isn't as good. So we have the point is we have a cost issue, not not a quality issue, and and we can address that. But you don't have to throw the whole thing away and start from scratch. We we there are a lot of good things about our country, our healthcare, our energy sector, a lot of good things about America. There's a lot of good in our past, the concept of freedom and liberty, of justice for all. That's not bad, that's good. The concept of justice being an individual thing. Social justice isn't justice. It's the abdication of justice. Blaming people or not blaming them based upon what they look like instead of what they do. Once upon a time, that was considered abhorrent universally. Now one political group seems to think that should be the norm. I mean, what is this, the Twilight Zone? Hatred is the issue. Hatred is the evil. Hatred is what we should be focusing against. Not just hatred of black people, but hatred of all people, whether it's racism, whether it's ableism, whatever it is. Hatred is not a good thing. Hatred is an evil. Nobody should be hateful of other people. That's what we have to stamp out. In terms of rebuilding our inner cities, in terms of the structural issues that have been caused by, amongst other things, again, the war on poverty, or the war on black people, as Milton Friedman put it, or American apartheid, as I like to call it, that's, 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 that's a little bit tricky to fix. The obvious way to fix it is to undo it. The obvious way to fix it is to eliminate minimum wages. Right now, minimum wage, people are getting paid more than minimum all over the country anyway. It's hard to find a job that pays less than $13, $14 an hour. Uh, so, you know, we don't necessarily even need a minimum wage. We're seeing that before us right now today. So if we get rid of the minimum wage and uh, we allow people in the inner cities to work for a little bit less than people in the suburbs, that would attract business back into the inner cities. That would attract factories, for example, back into the inner cities where they can take advantage of that slightly cheaper labor. That brings wealth back into the inner cities, which improves the schools. You improve the schools, you improve the educational opportunities. You improve the educational opportunities, well, now the wages go up. 
the gap in income starts to go away. You improve the schools, you also attract wealth back into the inner cities because people will want to live there. You can't, Detroit is, one of the reasons Detroit is so hard to fix is that the, the, the public schools are, are horrendous, they're terrible. They're the worst public schools in the country. If you want to make Detroit or any inner city healthy again and vibrant again, you have to make it a place where young families want to be. And young families want to be where they can educate, where their children are going to get an education, where their economic opportunity, all of these things are interrelated. So just undoing the war on poverty would fix a lot of those problems. Milton Friedman wanted to replace the war on poverty with what he called a negative income tax or reverse income tax. And the way this would work is you would put, uh, you would, you'd have a dollar value, say maybe $50,000 a year, and anybody who makes less than that uh, you take the difference between that 50000 a year and what they actually make, and you give them half of that. So if somebody's making 40000 a year and the line's at fifty, you're going to give them 5000 Now they make 40000 on their own, they get 5000 Now they've got 45000 So, And if they're making 30000 they get ten. Now they're at 40000 As their income increases, you, you, the, 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 the benefit only goes down by half. So if you're making an extra dollar an hour, you keep 50 cents of it. That means that you have an economic incentive to improve your 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 wages. Even as you're starting out in life, you're allowing people to enter the lower rungs of uh, the workforce. So there, there's there's no disincentive for hiring, which would create lots of, of jobs. And you know that's a much better system than what we put in place. But of course, Milton Friedman was trying to do something very different than what Linda B. Johnson was trying to do. Milton Friedman was actually trying to solve the problem, not deflect blame in a different direction. Deflecting blame is easy, and particularly when, when it's your fault. It's, 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 it can be politically expedient to deflect blame. So if your party, for example, is the party of 300 years of racism and Jim Crow, and you don't want to face that, which you might have to if you try to actually solve the underlying issues, it's much easier to say, well, you know, everybody got up and changed places, and, and now they're the ones who are at fault, even though they didn't do it. That's it's easy to to blame people. It's it's much more difficult to try to find systemic solutions to societal problems. But that's a much better solution. What you have to do is you have to fundamentally change the dynamics in ways that make businesses want to relocate into the inner cities, and to do that, you have to make it economically. You have to create economic incentives for businesses to locate in the inner cities. Well, the people are in the inner cities. The people still live predominantly in and around cities. So there should be an incentive there just in terms of, of, of having an abundant source of labor readily available. But that labor needs to be better educated than it is. Uh, it, it needs to believe in economic opportunities more so than it does. It's, it's kind of a, the trick there is you have to do it all at once. You have to improve the schools. You have to convince people that the economic opportunities are within reach and, and are better than, than, than welfare or whatever, crime, whatever else may be going on. You, you have to get the businesses to relocate there, which means you have to have incentives. It's, once you get it started, it, it'll snowball and, and, and the problems will start to go away. But it all starts with recognizing that the war on poverty is the root cause of, of, of so many of the things that are, are plaguing our nation today. The war on poverty has exasperated racism. It has exasperated income inequality. 
It has it's destroyed our inner cities. It's destroyed the two-parent household, which is so important in, in, in any dynamic related to success. And it, it's, it's, it's done a tremendous amount. It hasn't destroyed poverty. Poverty was dropping prior to the war on poverty. It flatlined as soon as the war on poverty came, and it hasn't budged since. So the one thing the war on poverty claims to be trying to address, it, it didn't address. It, it, it's, only, it's only made it... And of course, it, dependency isn't a solution for poverty. You, you, don't make somebody, you don't make somebody wealthy by making them dependent on you. You make them wealthy by making them independent, by making them able to take care of themselves. You know, making them able to live off their own labor and making them able to profit off their own, that's how you address poverty, by making people, by, by, by making people not impoverished, by making people wealthier through, through work and effort. It's the exact opposite of what the political class has been doing. So that's the direction we have to go. We have to focus on problems, root problems, such as not just racism, but hatred in general. We have to focus on solutions, doing things that help flesh and blood human beings, not just deflecting with blame. It's not our fault anymore, now it's your fault. No, we have to get past that. We have to focus on those specific things, policies that are impacting our country in a negative way. They're impacting people in a negative way. And we have to, to, to reverse those policies and create new policies that improve lives, flesh and blood lives for flesh and blood human beings. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is our show. Thank you for watching. Now it's time to get involved and get loud.